Welcome to the Deep Waters Podcast. We pray that Christ is at the beginning and in the middle and the end of all that we do. May openness and peace mark our discussions. As we engage in conversations about the fresh move of God, may our hearts be drawn to unity. And in all things, may this shape us to look more like you, Jesus. Amen. Grab a cup of your favorite ginger turmeric tea. It has to be that tea. <laughs> From Trader Joe's. From Trader Joe's. This one is very specific. And enjoy the Deep Waters podcast. It's supposed to be good for your joints and your stomach, I think. Ginger and turmeric. I just started drinking it and my stomach joints already feel so much better. (laughs) You know what it's not good for doing is making your teeth white. I'm pretty sure Mm. turmeric stains worse than most things. Yellow. (laughs) Yeah, it is very yellow. Well, you're on one today. (laughs) I am on one. I love that. It's so fun. Well, we're bound for a good time here, listeners. Yes. We're so glad you joined us today in a discussion about Jesus. <laughs> Come on. That's the best topic ever. Yeah, totally. Hopefully it's always kind of the root of all the topics we talk about on here. Yeah, for sure. I mean, me saying a discussion about Jesus makes it sound like we're going to do Christology, which is like the discussion mm. of the nature of Jesus or something. But no, what we're actually doing is I think we're going to conclude here. I forget if I said that last week. But if I said it last week, then I really mean it this week. We're going to conclude our series on consecration. Mm-hmm. Um, the the series that, of the power of the tongue that turned into consecration. Yes, it started as the power of the tongue. Mm-hmm. Good, good call. And you know, w- one thing I said we talked about last week was that consecration is something that the Holy Spirit seems to have just been revealing to us in this season. Mm-hmm. Well, I was on the phone yesterday with my brother, Daniel, who brought me to River House, so I know many listeners know him. It's just a wonderful part of our church community, though now he lives in Manhattan, New York City. And anyway, last week he was in London at a church conference where I think there were 14 churches or 14 nations represented by the people all at this conference in London. And it was essentially... um, crafted around the ideas that came forth in the outpouring at the Asbury revival earlier this year, this conference was, Mm -hmm. and my brother just went on and on to talk about how consecration was at the forefront of what God seems to have done at Asbury. And then what God wanted to unleash through everybody connected to Asbury. And I just thought this was really fun Daniel said that they were talking about this at the conference that, um, Asbury, it's located in a really small town in Kentucky population, like 3000 or something. Wow. I don't know. It's very small. Maybe that's not right, but I never fact checked any of this, but there were tens of thousands of people flooding into this town for the outpouring. And it was so much that the police of the city, I guess, had to like tell the university to shut things down because it was overwhelming their infrastructure. Like they didn't have enough water 
or like like the sewage was overwhelmed that's crazy like the people in this town that were all flooding to asbury to interact with the revival that was taking place um literally couldn't fit in this town and what's beautiful about that is that god in a way it feels like god outpoured in a place that the outpouring was not allowed to remain. Hmm. And because of that, the outpouring was then missionized and sent out. And now, at least what his argument was, was now the global church is talking about consecration. Mm -hmm. Now the Holy Spirit is moving in a way that he has been moving around the whole world. And it's like, oh, of course, so Holy Spirit to move the whole church in the same way at the same time. That is really cool. Instead of us just like, Oh, talking about consecration in the podcast, it's like, Oh my goodness, this might very well be, and seems to be something that the Lord wants to communicate to his church today. Hmm. And so it's connected to this outpouring in Kentucky and churches all over the globe are catching it. And we're just one small small example of that in a little corner of the church called the treasure valley idaho you know yeah that's really cool i feel like it's confirmation that like we serve this holy spirit that is a a person or the spirit of jesus or something it's Mm. like this one thing that would it makes sense that it'd be saying the same thing Mm -hmm. to many people if it's real you know that's like really cool it's affirming Mm -hmm. for sure isn't it very affirming that's amazing. I'd like to learn more about it. It sounds like if ever someone was going to go up to the stage for worship at Asbury during the revival or to go up and speak or pray or be involved in any way, there was a room set aside called the consecration room Wow! at Asbury. And you went into the room to pray and receive prayer and intentionally offload anything that God did not want you to be carrying onto the stage. Wow. Either in intellect, if you had some kind of agenda to bring, the consecration room was set aside, designed for you to set yourself aside specifically only for what God wanted to accomplish mm. and not for what you might want to accomplish. And everybody before they were involved in leadership had to pass through the consecration room. Isn't that wow. cool? That's really cool. It feels like, yeah, whatever's from the stage is just going to be so pure. Mm-hmm. Wow, I love that so much. Isn't that lovely? Mm, yeah, that's so mm. cool. So we could we could sit on this topic a lot longer, and I suppose if, if the Holy Spirit wants to, we will. But the plan is that this will be the last um, of this conversation we've been having around being the salt of the earth and the light of the world mm-hmm. and using our tongues wisely, but using really our whole lives yeah. wisely for his glory. Yeah. Yeah, looking back over this series, the whole idea, I think it was in the cussing conversation um, about like if we're asking the questions of like how close can we get to the guardrail or like what where's the line you know is like missing the the heart of what this like spirit of consecration is going after and I you said something it's like if we're called to be the light of the world let us be the brightest lights if we're called to be mm-hmm. the salt of the earth let us be like the saltiest people and that's like stuck with me. I think about that all the time. Oh, and yay. I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to play into what we talk about today too. that same idea. And it just gets me really fired up about 
consecration and living a sanctified life and mm-hmm. trying to be pure, not for a religious reason, but for a, I don't know, better the world reason. Amen. You know, Amen. it's not, not just cause it's like a, a don't do or a do this. It's like, because the world needs it, man, which is, that flows really well from the little learning study that both you and I have done though. I'm sure most of our podcast listeners haven't. Um, N.T. Wright recently came out with a book on Romans, mm-hmm. specifically chapter eight, right? Mm-hmm. Is the whole book about that one chapter? Did you pick that up? I, I thought it seemed like it, he maybe touched on like an overall theme, but really dove into Romans eight Yeah, from what okay. I understood. We didn't read the book yet, yet. but just heard him interviewed. Yeah. And the podcast where N.T. Wright was sharing about it, um, he essentially fleshed out that idea that for so long in the evangelical church in the U.S., we have boiled down the Christian faith to uh, you put your faith in Jesus so that you can go to heaven when you die. Mm-hmm. Avoid hell. Yeah. That's like the gist. And N.T. Wright, if you don't know him, just an f- incredible New Testament scholar from the United Kingdom. Um, he emphatically says, no, that is not the gospel. The gospel is that God is committed to having a relationship with the world and things have gone wrong. And now he's radically committed to restoring all things. Mm -hmm. And he's saving humans by his grace through their faith in the process of restoring everything, Mm -hmm. all of creation. Yeah. So this isn't about like rescuing people off of a sinking ship. It's about, um, rescuing people so that they can help in his work to redeem the sinking ship so that it doesn't sink. Mm -hmm. And ultimately only by his grace will the sink, will the sinking ship be rescued. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He didn't use that metaphor. I used that metaphor, but is that kind of what you picked off of? Yes. 100%. He, he mentions that salvation for a long time was thought as the end. Like that's like, Mm. that's the, bow on everything that gets us to heaven that's that's all that we need like that's not that's not the right word but he mm-hmm. just says that salvation is the beginning yeah. like you are saved so that you can be a part of the restoration of the world it's good you're not saved to go to heaven amen which this- could ruffle some feathers i'll be honest like that's like there's a i think a very common paradigm within the, especially the american church that doesn't believe that mm-hmm Honestly. So if you're wanting to turn this off yet, please don't. <laughs> yeah. Hang tight. And maybe we just have some good discourse about this. Cause yeah. I think it's worth fleshing out and worth asking questions about if you have them. Yep. So please ask them this. It's an example of how, what we think and what we believe really matters because it changes the way that we live. If you believe that the purpose of this whole Christianity thing is for you to go to heaven when you die, then yeah, pray the prayer, put your faith in Christ, and then just keep on living however you want to live. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you living however you want to live is going to put you into hell, which is the whole, oh no, but you're not saved by what you do. So you're fine. Yeah. Just keep living however you want to live. <laughs> you know, All along, you're missing the point that it's about God restoring everything. You're part of that process. It's all by his grace. Mm-hmm. And now, yeah, he's, he's utilizing his church for the inbreaking of the kingdom. Hmm. This, that, that idea 
is a relatively new thing to me that I've only heard in the past few years. Would you say that's like an idea that's new across the board for Christians or have historic, like historically have Christians believed this idea of God is in the business of restoring and not just oh. beam me up Scotty, like sure. what Jordan Werner said from the stage. Right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Classic Jordan Werner making Star Trek. Star Trek references. References. Yeah. I don't know actually if he ever had. Before. I know. I'm like, that's, I don't know if that's a. That's not classic. really classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't have a survey of the church history on that particular question, but it's definitely there in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, I think th- you could make an incredible case that the church fathers got that in the early church. And then when. Um, the desert fathers escaped to like sort of save Christianity from lukewarmness and Christendom. I would say from that point to now, there's probably been a continual ebb and flow where the gospel has been incorrectly understood Mm -hmm. in different ways. Yeah. Um, And I think N.T. Wright also says this, that in a way, every generation has to step back and look at their culture and then articulate the gospel in a way that makes sense to the circumstances of that generation. Mm. It's not because the gospel is ever changing, but because we're changing culturally and generationally so rapidly anymore. Um, We have to learn how to present the gospel in a way that speaks to us where we are. Mm-hmm. And so if you're, um, if you happen to be found in a moment in church history where everybody is trying to prove that they deserve salvation, then the gospel is going to sound different than if you find yourself in a moment where everybody just believes that they have salvation. And so they just go on sinning. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in one in the first case, you have like Martin Luther calling for us to realize that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of what we can do so that no one can boast. It's a free gift of God. Ephesians chapter two, eight through 10. Right. Mm -hmm. But then in the latter case, you get Kierkegaard who says, if everybody's Christian, I mean, we're baptizing cattle. It feels like everyone's a Christian. And because everyone's a Christian, maybe no one is actually a Christian because our culture has all slumped into some kind of lukewarm thing that calls itself Christianity. But in reality, Christ would come home, would come back to the church and look around and not see anybody who really knows him. Wow. And so then Soren Kierkegaard's like clanging the gong, ringing the bell saying like, wake up. Christendom is not actually Christian. Hmm. You think you've arrived, but this cheap grace has like lulled you to sleep and you, Satan has you right where he wants you. Wow. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says very similar things about Germany in his day. Yeah. So I, I would say like different people in different cultures, contexts have to sort of uh, rearticulate the gospel in a way that is understandable yeah. to their cultural moment. Mm-hmm. And this is just one way I think the, the Lord's trying to speak to us. Yeah. It, it's like if he's hitting consecration so well, that's because we've probably been lulled especially as an American church, as a Western church, we've been lulled into some kind of um, 
Well, what's the opposite of consecration? It's compromise. It's common. Common. Mm-hmm. To speak to our last... Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I feel like I'm talking a lot right now. No, it's really good. Does I, this feel yeah. helpful? Yes. Yes. And I, I wanted to say that I feel like I know the heart of what you're saying. And I, I think it's clear what you've said. But if anyone's feeling that like we're saying that, you know, we have to reassess every time, um, every generation to make the gospel the most relevant thing is not what we're saying at all. Mm-hmm. Like even in all your examples, it's like, well, we need like, what's the way that this is, should be cutting us, right? you know? And I think that's where, you know, reassessing is you're going to find the way that's actually going to be the most um, controversial, Hmm. you know, and not the most relevant. We're not going for relevance. We like look and we've read about consecration. It's supposed to be so different from the world. It's good. Um, And I think that's just important to say. That's good. And that's also what we're kind of hoping to call ourselves and the listener um, river house to a, a place that is, we should look different than the world. Amen. You know, amen. Even though we're, it's the same gospel from two, three, a hundred generations ago. Mm. I don't know if, that, if that's too many generations, but, um, 10,000, 10,000. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, that's a good, yeah, that's a good segue actually to where okay. we're headed. I don't know that you did that intentionally, but I not terribly intentionally, but I feel like that's, <laughs> I didn't know that's kind of like the heart of yeah, this podcast, the heart sure. of this podcast. So the, this is where we're going friends. I think in the consecration conversation, what you could hear is I need to be apart from the world because God, God calls me to be different than the world. Hmm. And you see that, you know, Ephesians chapter four, like you are no longer in the darkness of the world, the way that the Gentiles were living. Mm-hmm. But now you're called as like children of light to take off your old self and put on your new self. All this language, right? Yeah. What that could start to mean to me is, all right, then I have to just remove myself from culture. Hmm. Yeah. If culture is the problem, then I need to remove myself from it. And, uh, that's what we want to tackle today. Actually, how does Christ call us to engage with culture? And this is a very ancient question Hmm. from the very beginning of the church. Um, I took a really amazing, um, history of Christianity class when I was in my undergraduate study at Whitworth university and my incredible Christian history professor, a guy named Jerry, Sitzer, um, he taught that basically the predicament of the early church could be boiled down to this. Are you going to choose isolation or syncretism? Have you heard of syncretism before? I haven't, but I think I can. Yeah. Syncretism, uh, think synonym that's syncretism is spelled S Y N like synonym. Um, so it comes from that same root. Syncretism basically means we're just going to assimilate to be like everybody else in culture. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of people in ancient Rome that looked at Christianity and said, Christianity, great. Jesus Christ, we'll slide him on the Pantheon. You can worship him just like I worship Athena and that guy over there is worshiping Zeus and these people are worshiping Poseidon. Sure. Yeah. Throw Jesus in the mix. Why not? Mm -hmm. That would have been syncretism. It's like, okay, I'm just going to be absorbed into culture. I'm going to let our worldview be absorbed into it. Mm -hmm. Isolation 
the opposite swing of the pendulum is to remove yourself entirely from it. Um, and then you can imagine what route the Christians took the third way, as we say, Mm -hmm. um, and that was to neither be isolationist or syncretist, but instead to, to actually be in the world, but not of it, which is where, I mean, that's the same thought that should come to our minds whenever we use those words Mm -hmm. in the world, but not of the world. Which I want to read. Is it okay if I yeah, read Jesus's do. prayer? Come on. In John chapter 17. This is just a snippet of it. Starting at verse 13. This is Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane. But now I come to you. Jesus is praying to the father. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world. So that they may have my joy made full in themselves. They being the Christians. Mm -hmm. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. You hear that language there. You're not supposed to be removed, but you're also not supposed to be of the world. So this is where we get that language. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. That's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Honestly, like that says it. Basically, we're just going to flush that out for the rest of the podcast. Perfect. Is that that okay? That sounds good. And we're going to use some examples, specifically um, an early letter from the church called the letter to Diognetus. But maybe before I do that, do you have any thoughts or questions? I felt like your brain was maybe brewing when I was reading that text. No, it's just, I mean, it's just always good to to brew over some of Christ's words, you know? (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Oh, man. I, I was just, I was thinking about what is of the world and Mm. i feel like he labels like the evil one as like being of the world Mm. um would you say that's correct is that like yeah like because he even talks to the the pharisees at one point like the father of lies yes is i don't know i don't know if that needs to be said at all but like that's just like the contrast that we have of like we are of heaven when we follow mm-hmm. Christ and there are things of this world that are going to try to, um, I think like water us down yeah, and make us uh, less fruitful. It's good. And so we need to not, we need to be on guard of that, but not just re- remove ourselves because that danger is there. That's good. That's what I'm kind of processing. Okay. I like it. Maybe this will help in that same vein, Ephesians chapter two. So before the whole, you're saved by grace through faith. Right before that, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So the world is one enemy of the soul. Um, Historically, Christians have said there are three enemies of the soul and they get them all from this little chunk in Ephesians 2. So it says, formerly, as you walked according to the course of this world, 
enemy number one. According to the prince of the power of the air, enemy number two. That's a fancy way to describe Satan. Mm-hmm. The prince of the power of the air. Honestly, I don't know everything biblically that's going on right there to describe Satan as the prince of the power of the air. There's yeah. a lot going on right there that we don't have time to get into, even if I did know it. Um, but that's just think Satan of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So this like spiritual stuff among them. We too all formerly live in the lusts of our flesh. Mm, There's yeah. the third enemy of the soul. So do you catch it? The world, the devil and our flesh. Um, so Paul's kind of describing that we have these like three different influences on us and none of them are God. Mm-hmm. Um, and they aren't all necessarily connected all the time, but they definitely have a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. Um, so whether we're just interacting with the world in a moment, or if it is the world, but Satan is really behind it, or if it looks like just my flesh, but it is Satan working through my flesh. I think there's probably tons of overlap there, but, um, I think it can still be helpful to point out that the Christian in the journey of faithfulness to Christ is working against three different enemies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's funny that we, have labeled those like the enemies of what the, the believer, what are we calling yeah, them? The, the, the classics called them the enemies of the soul. The enemies of the soul mm-hmm. are like three things that you can't actually isolate yourself from <laughs> wow. in all reality, huh. you know? So I think if you, if you think that isolation would be the, the end goal, you're probably lying to yourself in one way or another, because I mean, we're all on the world, you know, and <laughs> maybe even the, the figurative world, like oh. you just, without becoming a hermit in a cave, you can't get away from the world, Mm -hmm. but then you're left with the two others that are still going to be in the cave, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Like that's true. So it's like, it's a losing battle. If you're just trying to escape, if you're just trying to isolate it already from this reading, Mm -hmm. I'm like, that feels impossible. That's So already it feels like a fruitless endeavor. Wow. I like the way you pointed that out because it's, it makes it realize, makes me realize isolation for the sake of sheltering me mm-hmm. so that I can remain consecrated yeah. is actually a myth. Yeah. Like not only is it a bad idea, it, it can't actually happen. Mm-hmm. Like I can't be sheltered from the world because if I go anywhere away from somebody else, then I'm just creating new worldly patterns of evil. Yeah. Accidentally, you know, I think anyone throughout human history who thought what we're doing is like a new city on a hill movement um quickly found out that actually they were just a part of the problem because Mm. we're humans all in need of salvation you know totally i i wonder is there a thought in christianity that says everything about the world is bad hmm Cause, because like, mm-hmm. if we are to be consecrated, man, like if we consume anything on earth, are we just letting darkness into our bodies? Wow. You know, <laughs> but and that's maybe good. that's like, maybe that's like, you know, the furthest way you can take that. But also mm-hmm. I think if you believe anything is, or everything is unredeemable, right. you know, Whoa. besides like the so, veggies you grow in your garden and your family right. and your other cult followers or something, you know, (laughs) like, yeah, I mean, or like, you know, just like, right. So I I would say uh, 
to answer that question, I'm thinking of a theologian named Richard Niebuhr, brother to the more famous Reinhold Niebuhr, who wrote the Serenity Prayer. Have you heard of that one? Um, I mean, like, maybe, but give me the serenity to not have to change the things that I can't change and give me the courage to change what I can and the wisdom to know the difference or whatever. Yeah. It's made famous in Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's a Christian thinker that wrote about a hundred years ago Mm -hmm. and made that famous. Anyway, his brother, Richard Niebuhr, both of these men were incredible Christians Mm -hmm. who were really influential in the early 20th century America. Um, Richard Niebuhr wrote a book called Christ and Culture, where he was essentially trying to answer your question that you just Mm -hmm. asked. How do we interact with culture as Christians? Should we... um, Well, these are the answers that he comes up with. Should we, number one, oppose culture, which he calls the Christ against culture move. Mm -hmm. In that, you're probably at the most extreme end of a scale that says everything about culture is bad. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you start to look more Amish if you're taking this approach. Like even the clothes that people are wearing from the gap or wherever are in some way a problem. So we need to make all of our own fabric and sew all of our own clothing so that culture is in no way touching our society. Hmm. We need to be against culture removed from it Mm -hmm. would be the most extreme example of that approach. Okay. Um, And Christians throughout time have taken that approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, Similarly, Christians have taken the opposite approach, which is to swing the pendulum all the way the other way, which is to say um, that Christ is in agreement with culture. This is called the Christ of culture approach, Hmm. where we look at culture and we identify how Christ is moving in and through it, Um, that he's kind of the king of it all. And whether we're talking about like AI or space exploration or like, hip hop renovations in music. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Innovations in yeah. music. Um, like God, Jesus is somehow behind it all. And so I'm supposed to partner with culture because, um, God wants me to be present with what he's doing in and through it, all of it, not saying that all of it is good, but there's good, um, ex- expressions of every facet of culture. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's, That's an extreme Mm -hmm. on the opposite side of the scale. So we have Christ against culture, Christ of culture. And then the middle ground um, in this scale, he called the Christ above culture approach, Hmm. which is a combination that incorporates insights from both. Um, And yeah, I'm just reading an article that kind of boils down his book. But my... uh, well, there's, there's a bunch of different approaches here that can explain this, but I think the one that I have found the most helpful over time is that um, Jesus is the one who comes to transform culture into the heavenly ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Jesus is like on mission to interact with culture. Um, and what is of culture is not inherently evil, though sometimes it can be. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is in the project of ridding whatever needs to be rid of in culture and redeeming yeah. it all, essentially. The story of Christ, um, uh, like 
uh, I forget the, the, the word, but like Christ uh, confronting the money changers in the temple. Oh, yeah. Um, he didn't go to the temple and just think everything was okay and mm-hmm. just went about his business. It's good. He didn't avoid the temple because it was happening huh. there. He went in and like transformed it and like made like, you know, a bit of a, cool. a mess, but he engaged with what was happening. Um, but in a way that was hopefully transformative. That's great. I like that. Uh, I just kind of was brought to mind. So I felt like I'm thinking of, uh, there were a handful of times where people tried to catch Jesus in little traps. One of them was, Hey Jesus, what do you say about paying taxes? You know? Mm -hmm. And the Jews are over here saying the Romans are oppressing us. They're stealing from us. These, this taxation is like, it's messed up. We shouldn't have to pay taxes. But they're trying to corner him to force him to make a political statement of in a really challenging political conversation of their day. What do we do with taxes? Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus says, who's on the coin? Let's look at it. He takes this really confusing third way. He says, oh, Caesar's on that coin. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Which is Jesus's way of mic dropping, you know? Yeah, totally. Because it's like, I'm not even going to take your cultural binary in this political conversation. Hmm. I'm going to transcend your little arguments and actually cut to the heart of the matter beneath your argument. And the heart of the matter is you're not submitted entirely to the Lord. Hmm. That's the problem. Do whatever you want with taxes. That's an ancillary issue. The primary issue is that you and all of your belongings are actually gods. Come on. You should recognize that first and foremost. It's a cool uh, analogy because I'm sure theologians have thought of this, but like Caesar's is on the coin. Like that's his image. Yeah. We're like Christ's image and we need to like give our lives unto Christ. Amen. That's kind of a cool thing that's good we are like and so like who's who's whose image is on you you know wow yeah give to god it's like it's everything like, that you are is, is from god so give yourself to him so give yourself to because god. you're made in his image just like that coin is made in caesar's image oh isn't that great i love the bible i love jesus he's so much better than we give him credit for <laughs> we give him a lot of credit and still and better he's still better yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i just want to say that's how good he is <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um did that answer your question well enough oh like, yeah what do we do with culture i think that is a conversation that we're just going to continually hash out and mm-hmm. different christians have answered it in different ways like my great great grandfather grandpa jack um tv was invented while he was in his lifetime And he was so conservative around things like that. He didn't touch cigarettes, alcohol, gambling, dancing. I mean, somebody would be playing a card game and he would leave the room. Wow. Um, And then when TVs would come on, he just wouldn't go to family gatherings if the TV was present. And apparently by the time that he was like older in his life, my grandparents have told me that he would sit in the room 
but the volume ha would have to be off or turned low and his back would have to be to the TV. Wow. That sounds like compromise to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which it might be to someone. Just kidding. That's a good point. That's so funny. But he's like trying to figure out what do I do as a, a person working my very best to be faithful to Christianity when we have this new technology yeah. that's going to influence us in some kind of way. Hmm. Television. I, I, we need that kind of thoughtfulness. Yeah. I was just thinking, I'm like, I wish we had more thoughtful people like that, like <laughs> 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. That, like just, I don't feel like there, at least in my worlds, there just never was a lot of like theological discussion about the advent of the internet and then the advent of social media and the smartphone. I think people mm -hmm. would be like, oh, this is really distracting or whatever. But I feel like now we're finally getting to, ooh, maybe some of this is poison. You wow. Know? Maybe there's, there's only like way more negatives to this than positives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. Not to say that you need to go hide in a cabin in the woods with no electricity, but right. Sell there's, your car, there's, there's like things to, to wrestle with and think about. Mm -hmm. It is like you said, like we're always going to be wrestling with those things, especially in an age. It seems that technological evolution is a daily headline. Totally. Oh, that was well said. Oh, thank you. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I forget who said that we always compliment each other on this podcast, but they were not wrong. Um, should we dive into the letter? I'm so excited. Okay. This is one of my favorite things in the world. That's not the Bible is the letter to Diognetus. Um, <laughs> it's just such a cool writing, even that it exists still. And uh, okay. Let me just give you a little bit of background. Um, we have a lot of old documents in the church and not all of them are the Bible. You know, we have a lot of very ancient manuscripts that are the Bible, mm -hmm. but the early church was also writing more letters to each other than just what got put in the Bible. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that until I was in a church history class and we read like letters by a dude named Polycarp and Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Alexandria, these like huge figures in the early church because they were just the generation after the disciples. Mm -hmm. They actually knew the disciples. These, those three men, I think maybe they didn't personally, I know Polycarp personally knew John, but, um, I mean, it's crazy, That's right? So cool. There's, this is one generation removed yeah. from the apostles and they're mm -hmm. still writing letters to each other. So why wouldn't letters just to have been continued? Yeah. Um, because those letters were never viewed as scripture. They weren't copied down nearly as much. So we don't have nearly as many of them as we do the new Testament letters. But one letter that survived is called the epistle to Diognetus. And essentially what this is, is there's some Roman statesman, maybe a philosopher. We don't really know. Um, named Diognetus, who apparently has asked a handful of questions of this Christian man who is an expert in rhetoric. Very good with language, right? You've yes. read some of Oh, them. yeah. It's beautifully written. It's beautifully written. It's so cool. Um, and Diognetus has asked this Christian a few questions. Who is this God that Christianity worships? Um, why are they not afraid of death? why do they not worship the gods of the Greeks also? And also why do they not affiliate with the Jews and why is Christianity just around now? And why didn't it come around before? So, 
Diognetus is asking all these questions and this letter is a response to these questions, um, giving answers basically of uh, what Christianity believes and why Christians look the way they do and act the way they do. And it's an incredible snapshot into what the early church was acting like. Just so you know, we don't know who wrote it, um, but we know the person calls himself a servant of the apostles, right? Is that the phrasing of it? Yes. The servant of the apostles in Greek. Um, Or student or disciple. Okay. Mm -hmm. Student or disciple. And we also don't for sure know when it was written. Um, the earliest date we assume is somewhere around 130 AD and the latest date is like 250 AD. So that's kind of a, a wide window, like mm-hmm. 120 years, but somewhere in the second or third century. So this is, this is the early church when it's still very much so under persecution. Um, it's a long letter. I'd encourage you to just read it all. Remember, it's not scripture, but it is beautiful and it's worth your time. Do you, where did you get your translation of it? Oh, I just Googled. Okay. I'm a, I'll look for the one that you used and I'll link it. Oh, that's great. Notes. Okay. Yeah. Link it in the show notes. It's a translation by a man named Kursop Lake, um, the epistle to Diognetus. So yeah, check out the show notes and you'll find a PDF linked, um, attained from didache.com, which is another ancient text, the didache, but we'll get to that another day. <laughs> Oh man, church history classes are so fun. So you're about to dive into one with us. This is the fifth little chunk of the letter where the author is trying to describe the distinction between the way that Christians live and non-Christians live. And I'm just going to kind of, I think I'll just read through it and we'll talk about it as we go. Is that okay? Yeah. So again, asking that question, do Christians choose syncretism isolation or a third way. Hmm. And this is, this is, I think the third way described beautifully for the distinction between Christians and other men is neither in country nor and language nor customs for they do not dwell in cities in some place of their own, nor do they use any strange variety of dialect nor practice an extraordinary kind of life. So right here, he's basically saying language isn't different. They don't have different cities. They don't have different countries. Mm -hmm. So the distinction isn't in these things. This teaching of theirs has not been discovered by the intellect or thought of busy men, nor are they the advocates of any human doctrine as men are. That was an important thing for him to say because Greek philosophers are wise, you know, and they're coming up with these great philosophies like, um, Aristotle or Socrates or Plato are like these genius men that are coming up with philosophies that then generate disciples and worldviews, even like Confucius born Confucianism, you know, Mm -hmm. or Buddhism all named after a dude named Buddha. But what is happening here is not the author says it's not something that was discovered by intellect. It was something revealed rather by God is the implication. Yet while living in Greek and barbarian cities, 
according as each obtained his lot and following the local customs, both in clothing and food and in the rest of life, they show forth the wonderful and confessedly strange character of the constitution of their own citizenship. Mm. Okay. In case you didn't catch that, basically what he's saying is they have a different kind of citizenship Christians. Um, and it doesn't have to do with where they live or what language they speak. Um, it doesn't even have to do with their customs, like what they wear or what they eat. So that's, that's giving us a glimpse of like, I think essentially what this is, is it's code to say Christians are doing what other people do. Mm-hmm. Like they look the same. Yeah. They eat the same. And yet they act in a way that is like they're following the laws of a land that is from heaven. It's hmm. different than any country. Yeah. See that? Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then he goes on poetically. <clears throat> They dwell in their own fatherlands, but as if sojourners in them, they share all things as citizens and suffer all things as strangers. Every foreign land is their fatherland and every fatherland is their, is a foreign land. So that's a nice poetic way of basically saying they are not of this world mm-hmm. and yet they live in all of the nations around us Mm -hmm. here in Rome. They marry as all men do. They bear children, but they do not expose their offering offspring. Excuse me. Okay. That's, that's referring to a really gnarly practice in the early church time where if you had a baby that was not the baby you wanted for any reason, you would just, it was called exposing the baby. You would leave the baby out in the wilderness. Um, just horrific. And yeah, we could talk about the atrocity of that. Um, Christians were known for going into the wilderness and finding these exposed babies. Wow. And, um, they would like literally rescue babies that were just abandoned in the wilderness and then come and bring them to orphanages and then raise them. Mm-hmm. Christians were doing that and nobody else in Rome understood why. Cause that was a really common practice yeah. in their day. Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. To think about like how barbaric that was. Yeah. I love that. This is like kind of a very cultural detail for then for back then in the Roman empire. Right. And I think it's good to say that this letter is not someone wishfully thinking how Christians are to act in a culture. Uh, This is someone, at least this is how many interpret this letter. This is someone describing what was actually going on right in the first, uh, two centuries of the early church, Mm -hmm. which is so beautiful and encouraging. Like this is like actually a possible way to live. I just want to say that. I think that's really cool. I'm so glad you said that. Cause he's not saying, Hey, this is what Christians try to do, mm-hmm. but they're trying their best, but actually really they've compromised and they look a lot like everybody else. Mm-hmm. He's saying, no, they, they act different. They don't expose their offspring, wow. which was a normal thing to do. Again, I know that's really different than modern America, but, and praise God. Yes. Yeah. I would say in large part, things as horrendous as that were done away with because of Christianity's influence. Wow. And I don't think secular America has any idea that they have Christianity to thank for things like this. Um, it goes on. They offer free hospitality, but guard their purity. 
which is a way of saying anybody's welcome in my home. Come mm -hmm. eat dinner around my table, but I'm not going to share my marriage bed. Yeah. That's what this, the translation here says they share a common table, but not a common bed. Though. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad we have two different yeah, translations. That. Yeah. That helps. Um, so yeah, in, in other words, they aren't adulterers. Mm -hmm. They, they don't practice loose polygamous marriage or anything like that. Their, their sexuality is pure mm -hmm. according to the biblical ethic of sexuality. Their lot is cast in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their time upon the earth, but they have their citizenship in heaven. They obey the appointed laws and they surpass the laws in their own lives. Basically what that means is these Christians are following the laws of the land, but they're following even more strict laws that aren't laws of the land. They're laws of their faith. Hmm. Cool, right? That is cool. If it's like, if the law is expecting them to do this much, they're expecting even more of themselves because Christ compels them to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like, and then mine says at the beginning of that section, they exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. Oh, so it's I like, like, like the inescapable three things is like, we're in the world, you know? Wow. Like that's like the reality is like you're in the world. You can't get out of the world but we're not meant to be of the world. Wow. It's good. We exist in the flesh, but we don't live by it. Mm -hmm. It's not governing us. Yes. Excellent. Wow. I think that's good to say because even if we are able to uh, overcome every disordered desire that we have because we are born into a world this side of heaven, mm -hmm. you know, it's still going, your flesh is still a part of you. Right. Right. Uh, on this side of the new creation. So it's like, no matter how hard you work or strive or whatever, it's an inescapable reality that you're always going to have to be on guard for to not follow and like go down the paths of whatever might be. Um, yeah. Desirable at that time. Wow. Yeah. Just like the realities of, the world man it's hard there are so many ways we need to apply this to our lives and culture aren't there mm -hmm. and i i wonder so often like why was the early church supposedly pretty darn good at this like being the light of the world and the yeah. salt of the earth when modern christianity struggles as much as it does i think and i don't know maybe maybe this is just like cynicism and if it is, I pray that the Lord cleanse me of any cynicism, but it seems like hypocrisy is more common in Christianity today than true Christ likeness. Hmm. Like I feel that way, yeah. even in myself, I'll be honest. I'm not a, I want to be above reproach and I believe that I'm like progressing towards mm -hmm. Christ by his grace, but I have a long way to go, you know? Yeah. And I see Christians, especially in the headlines, you know, they're always the noisy ones. Totally. That say the most hateful things. And I think brother or sister in Christ, do you not realize what our call is? Yeah. To love. I think there's something even to, um, when we're recording this, this would be Jordan's message on the 19th of November, uh, mm -hmm. where he talks about... Um, signs and wonders yeah and like 
we are like, again, salvation being the beginning. And then we are to live a life marked by signs and wonders too. Mm -hmm. Um, and not even that, like, we're supposed to be like, just, well, I'm, I don't know. I don't know what, like, I don't know what that looks like. It's not something that's just been an outpouring in my life and I'm feel conviction on it. And wow. like, like what Jordan said, it like hit me between the eyes, like a freight train. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's Ouch. just something to that is, that's the redemptive life that the Bible's mm. talking about. Not just, you know, I got saved and then I go to church on Sunday and nothing else about my life changes. Wow. Like that, that feels so lukewarm in comparison to a letter like this or a sermon like that. Wow. That's good. Where you could be walking through a marketplace, interacting with all kinds of people, going to different restaurants, but then you interact with one person and it's like, whoa, something about this person is almost offensive to me because it's so different hmm. in the best way possible. Yeah. It like breaks your boxes of like, I didn't even know people could think like that. Yeah. That person had so much hope inside of them, you know? Wow. And I'm not saying like, yeah, it's like, I think signs and wonders, like Pastor Jordan said, can be so many things, but right. like even to be ready to speak an encouraging word to whoever you run into is, yeah, is actually like the real yeah. Holy Spirit inside of you pouring out for the redemption of this mm -hmm. world. But if like you don't pour out anything ever, like it's all just being held up inside of you. Wow, that's good. I mean, I'm preaching to myself too. Man. I'm just thinking about all of these things. Like I, I know everybody has different experiences and this is kind of fun that we have different education backgrounds, Jace, yeah. because in my in my schooling, elementary, junior high and high school, I was in public school the whole time. Yeah. And as a public school kid, I felt isolated from other Christians. <laughs> like, mm, yeah, I was sort of, I felt alone sort of, um, in that most of my friends were atheists, had no faith, or if they did have faith, it was of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, mm -hmm. which we didn't share. Yeah. Um, and so I, I looked to my left and to my right, and I didn't see a brother or sister in Christ that was a peer of mine, and that was really challenging. Yeah. And um, I was also given an opportunity to witness to literally everybody around me all day long. Yeah. And that, that's crazy. And I look back um, with some like, maybe some satisfaction, like God mm -hmm. used me in my quirky, awkward little teenage imperfection, but also some regret thinking I was, um, I think I was a little too embarrassed of my faith to really stand up for my faith. But the people who knew that I was Christian and you know, I tried to wear a cross necklace and I like carried my Bible around with me to different classes and people looked at me like I was crazy. Um, but I, I believe that there was like witnessing that happened. I'm thinking like in the world, but not of the world in North junior high school, but not of North junior high school yeah. was like my experience. And that was hard. Um, and you could say that, the school would influence me more than I would influence the school. And that's probably very true. And not, at the same time, I'm not sure if that's completely true because I think people 
throughout the whole school saw something different about you that was very attractive hmm. that like led to you being on student government like all four years of high school right wow yeah <laughs> good memory so yeah. it's like it's not like you're That's just nice. like in oblivion isolated like you're hmm. being you're bold enough just to be living a, a more attractive life that people are like, wow, this guy's cool. Wow. You know, I think that's awesome. Wow. I see that also. I, I don't know if she's okay with me talking about her on the podcast, but in my wife's education, she was also public school through and through, mm -hmm. even in college. I went to a private Christian college, but she went to Boise state and through all of it. Um, I feel like people have, well, yeah, mostly through all of it, people witnessed her as like the safe place where people could go and not feel judged, mm. um, where they would feel safe unpacking their own pain or whatever. And I, I am so confident that it's Jesus in her, in Haley, that drew other people in, in their moments of pain and weakness. Wow. And anyway, I, I think that's maybe a cool example of how this consecration conversation might lead us to think, oh, the schools are going a terrible direction in our culture, Yeah, which I don't disagree with. Mm -hmm. A lot of things in our world are going a terrible direction. <laughs> and um, I believe that Christ can use myself or my children, if I had children, yeah, um, to be the light in that context. Come on, that's preach that. Uh, and maybe that's not for everyone. Of course, like that's something that parents have to discern and I've never been a parent, so I can't say one way or the other, but I think that's something that Haley and I both feel pretty passionate about when we do have kids that we want to very seriously consider having our kids be in public school all the way through and through. And that's mm -hmm. not a financial thing. That's a, yeah. that's a witness thing. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. How do you interact with that? No, I, I, it's definitely, even as when we, when I became a dad, something that I started to think about and wrestle with. And yeah, I think it, it kind of comes down to whether you believe that all things will be redeemed or if things are just going to get worse and fall into chaos. Oh yeah. To unpack that a little bit more. Um, because if, if my view is that we as Christ's conduits are meant to just be in the business of improving everything, mm -hmm. restoring. I love that word restoring. Um, well then it makes a lot of sense that I shouldn't isolate away from something that is going poorly. Right. Like we should be drawn to not only the, the, the people that are helpless alone and broken, but also like the institutions that are broken and mm. corrupt and all those kinds of things. Cause we might Christ in us might have some redemptive power in those places. Whoa even though it's very hard. Like, that's the thing. It's like, that's not an easy ask of anyone. Mm -hmm. That's not an easy ask of my children or my family, no. or like, if that is the case, it's going to take a lot of intentionality that might not be needed. If I send my kid to Christian school, you know, yeah. of, of growing and discipling and all these things, um, which is again, hard in a busy life. I get that, you know? Yeah. And that's something I'm wrestling with. And so it, it's, and, and as someone that I think I would say that I believe in the restoration idea and theological path of the world. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. It's like, okay, what steps do I need to start taking now to build up 
a faith in my children that isn't going to be, or a light in my kids that isn't going to be overcome by the darkness that they might encounter in the world. Wow. Um, because it's, I think it's easier to keep your light shining. Like if you're just in like a really, really safe place. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it, that might also not promote the growth that it needs to be a mm. robust. I'm thinking like a candle flame versus <laughs> like tiki torch versus like Olympic torch, you know, like all the things that like <laughs> each one of those is less susceptible to, you know, chaos winds and stuff like that for using that picture. That's a beautiful metaphor. Yeah. I would love to parent a child in the way of Jesus such that they're like a bonfire that burns so that when the wind blows, the wind actually just catches more things on fire instead of putting the fire out. Come on. Yeah. Whether they're in a public school or a private Christian school. And I hope that that as an example, wasn't too touchy of a subject because I know it can be controversial, like education yeah. specifically, but. Well, I, I think honestly, like not to uh -huh. just call it everything, but like there's a lot of people at Riverhouse that homeschool, you know, and I don't want to just yeah. completely say that that's terrible and isolationist. Right. But looking at this, it's like, that's something that I would want to wrestle with if I was, I mean, we've thought about homeschooling too. Like that sounds really beautiful. And like, there's this like monastic quality of like raising your kids in this like really protective environment that could also, you know, stir up a really refined believer full of like faith and doctrine and all that yeah. stuff. Like I could see that too. And those are things that we've been wrestling with in church yeah. history for ages. That's why people ran to the desert and became monks, you know? Right. Like totally. And there's been some really beautiful, uh, lives that come from a monk or a nun that like have changed the world too. Amen. So it's like, uh, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. It's we like have to be some, thoughtful. something to be thoughtful and wrestle with. Yeah. I think maybe one good place you can go is if you choose to remove um, like I would say, I don't know. A, I, I counted them at one point. I want to say about half of the students in our youth group are homeschooled mm -hmm. or do like a homeschool co-op. Yeah. Um, and it's so incredibly important that those students be in community of some kind. Yeah. And so I'm really glad that they're plugged into a youth group. And I also would hope that those students are plugged into something that's not just church. Yeah. Whether it's youth group or on Sundays or something like I know a bunch of those homeschooled students are out with their parents, like volunteering mm -hmm. or they have jobs that are out in the world, like working at Walmart or Blimpy or wherever. Yeah. Um, and that's sweet because then you're going to interact with coworkers that might not be Christian and yeah. you're going to have a chance to be in the world but not of the world. Like, and I think in order to fulfill this call that Jesus prayed in John 17, we have to be in the world in one way or another. And if you're gonna, you know, be isolationist in one respect, I think we probably need to be more thoughtful about how we're going to engage mm -hmm. in a different respect. Yeah. Is that I, fair? No, I think that's incredibly fair. And I think the opposite would be even true too. Trying to balance all that. If your kid is in public school and they've got sports and theater and all these things that are like pulling their attention away from church or family, like really being intentional about when you are together as a family or when Sundays or Wednesdays come around Wow, that's to great. also ground them in a body of believers. That's good. So just as, so if the flip was true, like you're homeschooling and doing all this, but your kid's 
never go out into the world or you never go out and model that mm -hmm. and you're just on your little compound that's i would say that's the opposite of that same coin yeah that we all we need the balance of of in the world not of the world that's great i'm glad you said that my i'm feeling a little convicted because i think my story was in the world and way more of the world than i ever mm -hmm. realized and i I went to youth group sometimes, but not totally. And maybe I went to church on Sundays with my parents, but didn't really engage as much as yeah. was like healthy for me to have mm -hmm. engaged. I didn't have a robust community yeah. in my church. I just attended and kind of passively received church. I look at my life and I went I from sixth grade on, I went to private Christian school. Praise God. And was very involved in church, hmm. but... So much though that I didn't really have a job. My sports were at a Christian school, mm. all these things. If I did have a job, I kind of viewed everyone that wasn't Christian as someone to like, don't influence me. Like, oh, like yeah. almost like I will work with you, but not be friends with you. Yeah. Which is the opposite of where you are at, Funny. you know? And like, even now, I think you have these beautiful flourishing, flourishing relationships with people that think differently than you might not be even Christ followers. And I have... Sure no friends that aren't Christ followers. Wow. You know? I have pretty much no friends outside of River House. So wow. it's like a very different world in that sense. Because yeah. I now now I work for a church and I go to a church and we have small group and all these things and prayer that yeah. it's like my whole life is church, which is really good. I just need to be more I think where I feel conviction is when I'm out and about in the world, mm -hmm. man, I bet that's go time. You know, like I've been mm -hmm. in in a uh, Christian community and quote unquote isolation from the world. Like when I'm out, I really need to have the eyes of Christ for what, where that. is he doing? Um, where can I give, serve, pray, speak into? It's good. Um, wow. I feel like I just got a little download there. No, that was beautiful. And I'm thinking if there was a time that I came over to your house, well, this is a lot more of a personal conversation all of a sudden, but there was a time that Haley and I went over to your house and your neighbors were over there. And you just opened your home in a very hospitable way and mm. said like, yeah, what's mine is other people's yeah. too. So please come in. And like, I know you, I know you live with open handed generosity and that's a way that Jesus utilizes you. It's funny. There was one time, I think it was when I had just come back to Boise and I first started attending River House, there was a sermon about how we need friends mm -hmm. that aren't just Christian. Yeah. If all of our friends are Christian, then we're not witnessing to the world. I, if our, I mean, this is years ago now, so I'm deeply digging, but I think that's what the sermon was about. And I remember looking around realizing, Oh no, M my problem is the opposite problem. Hmm. I only have non-Christian friends. I don't have a single Christian friend. Wow. I thought to myself at that time, the only Christian Friends in my life were my college friends that didn't live in the same state as me anymore. Mm -hmm. And my, my parents and my brother. Wow. And my brother had just come back to the Lord at did, that time. Did that encourage you to like kind of dive deeper into church community? Yeah. I don't think it was long after that, that I started volunteering for the youth group. That's mm -hmm. cool. That's really cool. Yeah. I was like, shoot, I need to be grounded in community somewhere mm. and not just pout because college is over. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can I read a little bit more of this letter? Yes, please. Okay. It, um, I'm going to skip a section. It's just beautifully poetic. So keep reading it if you want to follow that link in the notes below. But um, this is, 
uh, a comparison that I just think is really lovely um, that I want to flush out a bit. To put it shortly, what the soul is in the body that the Christians are in the world. The soul is spread through all the members of the body and Christians throughout the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, but is not of the body. And Christians dwell in the world, but are not of the world. The soul is invisible and is guarded in a visible body. And Christians are recognized when they're in the world, but their religion remains invisible. You see how he's doing this? Yeah. Just playing like the the comparison between the soul and the Christian mm-hmm. and the body in the world. Um, and he says this, this is so cool. The soul loves the flesh, which hates it and the limbs. And Christians love those that hate them. So I think what is happening here is he's playing off of how Christians actually love all people. In fact, he says it in a couple places. I think that might've been one that I skipped over, but it says Christians love. Yeah. They love all and are persecuted by all men. Um, Cause at this time Christians were, you know, being tied to wooden stakes and burned as public torches so that the emperor could ride through on his chariot by the light of the burning Christians. Like just horrific stuff was going on in this day. Um, And despite that persecution, they're described as having loved all people. Um, This is beautiful. It says the soul has been shut up in the body, but itself sustains the body. And Christians are confined in the world as in a prison, but themselves sustain the world. Hmm. So this is putting a lot of emphasis on how significant Christianity is to the world being as good as it is. I think that like, what do you hear when you hear that comparison between Christianity and the soul? Like, do, does that communicate much to you? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind is that like, we are like the supposed to be the actual, like life force of everything good in the world. Huh. Yeah. Um, like the, we are, we are to be bringing our like light and saltiness to all things. Yeah. That's what comes to mind. Yeah. Like I want, I, I dream of a day when. I look around myself and I see that Christianity is at the cutting edge of all that is good and beautiful in the mm-hmm. world. And I think historically that has been the case way more than modern America realizes because the American church honestly hasn't done a very good job. Yeah. Um, but Christians invented hospitals and universities like most of the brilliant scientists through the Renaissance were all Christians and mm-hmm. like did their science unto the Lord, like Galileo, totally Isaac Newton, they're Christian people. Um, and they viewed like one of my favorite is a dude named blaze Pascal. And you might be familiar with his name because of the mathematician, like the mathematics work that he did, mm-hmm. but he was a Christian philosopher also. And he wrote just wow. some most amazing works on the goodness of God and how vast and sovereign God is. Wow. Yeah. If you've never read Blaise Pascal and you thought all he did was math. No. Or like, look at Martin Luther King Jr. 
excellent example in American history mm-hmm. of a Christian that is making the kingdom come by God's grace in America as it is in heaven. Hmm. Um, or uh, William Wilberforce, one of my yeah. favorites in English history, British history. He was a member of parliament, if you don't know William Wilberforce, in the 18th century, the, it'd be, 1800s? It'd be the 1800s. Okay. So the, the 19th century. The abolition of slavery. Essentially, he... Mm-hmm. And the band of close people around him are responsible for the movement that um, abolished slavery in Great Britain mm-hmm. before the U.S. did. Yeah, um, Christianity was at the cutting edge of that work. Come on. Uh, and I want to see Christianity be at the cutting edge of the trafficking that takes place in our world, mm-hmm. of the hunger issues, you know. Yeah. And I, I really think it is, and we don't recognize it nearly enough. Um, but that's a way I think of saying that Christians are the soul of the world. Don't you think? Yeah. I, I want to speak to this. This just came to mind. It's like Christians are the soul of the world, not just Christian leaders. I think there's mm-hmm. been a movement, especially in America. That's like, we just need Christian leaders and leadership Whoa. at the highest level. Say that. Um, and it takes the responsibility off of the lay Christian, the everyday mm-hmm. Christian that's just going to church. It's like, I'm doing what I need to do by just going to church or whatever. But if if only if only there was Christians as the mayor and the governor and the president or as the CEO of this big company or that big company, the world would change. And I think people are quick to just wipe their hands of that because it's like that hasn't happened yet i'm praying for that to happen but um and hopefully that happens you know but it's like i don't have any responsibility in this that's excellent when we are supposed to be the inbreaking of the kingdom of god wherever we're going yeah so if the call is to widows and orphans or the trafficked or the hungry or the the homeless or whatever that's on me amen that's on all of us that's on all of us right Um, and that, and that should, um, you know, like let that break our hearts for what breaks his too, you know, like that, there should be some weight to that. And it's like, okay, if that's the case, how am I using my resources to bring heaven on earth? Wow. That's good. Like I could sit back. I'm feeling convicted by this. I could sit back and think, oh, we live in a democracy. I will just elect politicians based on Christian policy. Mm -hmm. And that will be the extent to which I interact with all of these different issues. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. This person or that person seems to be doing the Christian thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Meanwhile, I neglect the fact that there are orphans and widows and refugees who are fleeing from horrible situations in our own city that I have access to. If I just go find them, Mm -hmm. there are people with terrible needs, like huge needs all around us. Yeah. Um, and I could just sit and watch the news, the 24 seven news cycle and vote and feel self-righteous about the way that I vote instead of taking care of the sick. Like, this is crazy. There was a plague that broke out in the early Roman Empire. Um, COVID-1. It was called (laughs) (laughs) COVID-1. That was a good joke. 
Um, it was called the Antonine Plague, named after I think the empire or some the emperor at the time. I forget, but right. um, A.D. Oh, oh, Marcus Aurelius, I think, was the emperor at the time. I don't know why it's called the Antonine Plague, but A.D. 165 to 180 A.D. So like the second century. And Christians were known not just by Christian historians, but by historians in general. Hmm. Christians were known as the caretakers of the plague. Wow. Um, and because of that, a disproportionate amount of Christians died in this plague because they caught the plague wow. doing the caretaking and would die as a consequence of it. Which that like offends me so much because we've just gone through a pandemic and like, I mean, I'm not a medical worker Yeah. and praise God for all of the medical workers that were on the front lines of that and the teachers and, you know, everybody else who was doing frontline work in one way or another. But I mean, the, the best I did when somebody I knew was sick was drop off a meal. You know, I think I gave you a Jimmy John sandwich when you had COVID you one time. Very, very <laughs> grateful for that. That's good. But like, I'm thinking about these Christians, like, like holding people as they're dying of a plague and then catching the plague themselves and then dying. But it's, um, and you can read accounts of this if you want. I don't have any of them pulled up, but, um, it's did, that did kind Tert of love. Tertullian write about that? Do you know of that name? Oh, I'm sure he did. Yeah. That, He's one of the early church fathers. This was in the article that I'm reading. It says written by Tertullian of like what they did in that plague. Incredible. Behold how they love one another and how they're even ready to lay their lives down for one another. Wow. Praise God. Beautiful. There's the Christianity in that generation. So the plague lasted for 15 years, according to my quick search. Um, in that generation, that was when Christians were also being persecuted for their faith, like killed, thrown into the arena to be eaten alive by wild animals. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they loved their pagan and Christian brothers and sisters so much that they would take care of them while they were sick. I, that just, that's the soul of the world kind of stuff. And that's cutting. That's not that's like cutting. That's not very, uh, you know, let's be relevant right here. You know, like that's like, oof, I feel that. Wow. Mm. So that's in the world. They're not isolating. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I, I felt like it was really important to record this podcast because I didn't for a second want to walk away from this consecration series and leave isolation on the table. Like it's a valid option. Yeah. In Jesus's words, of John 17, that's not a valid option. He says, I'm as God sent me into the world. So I am sending you into the world. Think of yeah. us as like going into the mission field of the world. Like we have to be in it. Mm -hmm. Jesus is sending us there. We have to take that call responsibly with seriously. So yeah, man, I don't know. I'm just, I'm feeling kind of hit by this. Uh, one more example I pulled up in my preparation. Mm -hmm. Is it okay? Yeah. Do you remember if I've talked about Alexis de Tocqueville on the podcast before the French philosopher? The, the name sounds familiar, so I'm probably sure. Yeah, I think I maybe brought him up before because um, this little nugget from American history, I find to be a great confirmation of the importance of Christianity hmm. in the world. Because if 
the author of the letter to Diognetus is right and we are the soul of the world, then in order for the world to really be made right, like Jesus is going to use his church. Like the, the church needs to be present in any given place. You know, if we want China to be redeemed, we need to pray for the church in China. Yeah. If we want Russia to be redeemed, we need to pray for the church in Russia and Iran and Israel, Palestine. We need to pray for the church in all mm-hmm. corners of the world because the church is God's plan, you know, for restoring yeah. the world. That's so good. Through his power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I almost just went off on a tangent, but, um, it's so good. This is great. So in 18, when was it? 1835. I forget early in the 1800s, there's a, French philosopher and poly, um, like a poli sci specialist named Alexis de Tocqueville. And essentially his job was to try and critique American democracy. Hmm. And at this question, at this time in American history, the, the big question on everybody's mind was, is the American experiment going to work? Yeah. Is democracy going to survive or will it fail? Mm-hmm. Um, because it feels too fragile to not have a monarchy, you know, for example, um, or even like a parliamentary monarchy like the UK or so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was a question at the front of people's minds. And Alexis de Tocqueville wrote a book called democracy in America that was essentially hashing that out. And here's some of the things that were, he wrote, um, De Tocqueville explained more thoroughly than anyone else why religion, though in some ways a pre-modern and pre-democratic phenomenon, is nevertheless essential to the health of a modern democracy. I'll say it again. Religion is essential to the health of a modern democracy. So this is one of his key themes in the book, Democracy in America. He even writes this... um, Oh, wait, I lost my place. Oh, there it is. Yeah, this is crazy. De Tocqueville concludes the preservation of America's traditional religion is one of the most important tasks of democratic statesmanship. He says, wow, the preservation of our Christianity. Mm -hmm. So when he says our religion at that time, he's talking about the Christianity in America. Indeed, he goes so far as to say that, quote, Religion should be considered the first of America's political institutions, unquote. And even that it is necessary for Americans to, quote, maintain Christianity at all costs. Because essentially what he's saying is that American Christianity acts as a corrective against perilous democratic tendencies that might pull a democracy apart. Wow. So he's saying a democracy could lend itself to the tyranny of the majority, individualism, materialism. Have we ever heard of those things before? Good night. Or democratic, democratic despotism. So he says a, a, dem- a democracy from his standpoint is fragile. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not a flawless system, but where it will be held together is in the moral tendencies of the people that hold that majority together. And so if the majority, the democratic base of a nation 
is not held by a different moral compass, then the democracy will fall. Wow. That's what Alexis de Tocqueville said in 1835 or whatever That's when he wrote wild. that book. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I think that could like promote a bunch of Christian nationalism that says like we need to make America Christian and as Christian as possible. And yeah, like some of that I'm here for, some of that I think can conflate America with Christianity and I don't want to do that because mm-hmm. Christ is for all the nations, yeah. not just for America. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll probably talk about Christian nationalism at another date. Mm-hmm. But what I want to say, like why I said that is what Alexis de Tocqueville is essentially saying as a non-Christian man, just to point that out. Wow. I didn't point that out. Yeah, He's not a so Christian. Interesting. He said this moral compass that comes with Christianity will hold the democracy together. And without it, he doesn't see that democracy will be a stable enough government mm. on its own. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I see that. Huh. That's cool. So just like the body needs the soul, the world needs Christianity. And if we, in our efforts to be consecrated, remove ourselves to a state of isolation, then we're not answering the call of Christ to go forth to all nations and make disciples of them, Hmm. you know, yeah, to see the kingdom of heaven on earth. Hmm. Okay. That was a soapbox, but I said all my points. What do you think? (laughs) I think we can, we can wrap it up there. The letter to diagnesis. Mm -hmm. Diagnetus. Diagnetus. I guess it depends on the translation. Diagnetus. So good. Highly recommend diving into that more yeah check it out because it's just i mean it's just poetic and it talks about way more than what we hit on Mm -hmm. i have it printed out here on like six pages and it's beautiful i'm glad we went back to this conversation if like you said the sole purpose to say that isolation is not the should not be the answer to consecration right like yeah, the the high priest didn't consecrate himself and then just stay in the Holy of Holies. Right. That's... Because that would completely like damn the flow of the Lord's presence That's to the good. people. That's great. Wow, which fits with our vision really well, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The vision is, well, you could probably articulate it better than me. Mm. I was just thinking, I hope he is able to articulate this because <laughs> I can't put my finger on it right now. The, with the, this like cosmic mountain, actually, that's a good little segue. That'll be one of our next series mm-hmm. coming up through December. We want to talk about the vision and get get some different perspectives on the mic to unpack it with us. But it's essentially that here at Riverhouse, we want to be a people who... Um, worship the Lord as his royal priests, um, attending to him out of adoration for him, Mm -hmm. attending to one another's needs as the church, as a Mm -hmm. brother and sisterhood that is to care for one another and ministering to the world beyond. And so, yeah, what you said, if, if all we do is go into the Holy of Holies and never leave, then it then just, we've stopped the flow of the Ezekiel 47 river. Yeah. And that's the image from the top of the mountain springing forth down into the world. That's great. That's come it. On. That's it. All right. So more to come. It, it's like, if we want to come back to that original kind of dichotomy that I pointed out, the syncretism to isolation, I think consecration can get us away from syncretism or compromise. Mm-hmm. 
Consecration will get us away from compromise. And hopefully a consecration done right will not result in isolation. It will result in, in the world. Yeah. Not of the world. That's, that's a good little summary. All right. So we pray that you would go out this week, this month, this year, (laughs) um, as a consecrated one into the world to be to the world, what the soul is to the body, what salt is to the meal, what light is to a dark room by the grace of Christ. May you be empowered by him in wisdom and peace and joy and love and hope and faith to endure all things unto him, radiating his glory and goodness and beauty everywhere you go. Come on. That was so good. That was Mm. beautiful. Praise God. Oh, love you, Benjamin. Love you, Jace. Thanks for letting me talk way longer than I probably should have. I wanted it to be more, so we're good. (laughs) Great. Uh, Yeah, all right, friends. Well, if you're listening to this on the date released, I hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving yesterday. Mm -hmm. If you're listening to it seven years from now, and it's June, I hope you're enjoying a nice sunny day. (laughs) (laughs) So good. So good. Well, we love you guys. Yeah, much love. Bless you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Deep Waters Podcast. If you have comments, questions, or concerns, maybe even a recipe or two, please send them to deepwaters at riverhouseministries.com. And if you would like to join us at Riverhouse for Sunday service, we meet at the Vineyard Boise at 4 p.m. We'd love to see you there. We cannot do this podcast without a little help from our friends. Our theme music was written and recorded by the Riverhouse worship team. Production is done by Jordan Sodeman. Special thanks to Isaiah Guerrero for our artwork. Benjamin Olson writes and co-hosts with me, Jace Langley, and I also edit this bad boy. If you like this podcast and want to keep going on this journey of discipleship with us, please leave us a review wherever you listen to the Deep Waters podcast. May Christ be with you wherever you go.